How do we bear witness to the chaos of conflict with compassion and stillness? What does it take to bring back images of war and destruction in a way that touches and moves people to take positive action? Arabella Dorman, portrait painter and war artist, talks to me today about her experiences in countries torn apart by war and conflict. This is the Beyond Conflict podcast, where we explore mental resilience in times of crisis. I'm your host, Yang Mei Ui. I'm a writer and podcaster. Beyond Conflict is the mental health charity for conflict zones. My guest today is Arabella Dorman. She's a leading portrait painter and an award-winning war artist. She's one of the ambassadors of Beyond Conflict. Her work as a war artist has taken her to Palestine, Gaza, Lebanon and Syria, as well as Iraq and Afghanistan. Arabella Dorman, you're a portrait painter as well as a war artist. What drew you to creating art relating to war and conflict? I believe that all artists are really feel perhaps responsible for telling the stories that need to be told, hopefully to try and make this world just a little better. Those stories act as a mirror to our times. They're food for the soul, as it were, to remind people of the underlying truth and beauty of our world. I think in the case of painting, certainly in my painting, the beauty and the need for human connection and that need for human connection is made all the more urgent and important by the ruthless disconnect that we are seeing in today's world, not only because of current conflicts, but also the internet and the recent pandemic. We found ourselves living in a time of crisis, a time in which all the old certainties have been shaken up and we walk into a state of the unknown. And this is where I think the role of the artist is so important, but there's a portrait painter because I, I paint with the same emotional palette and as a war artist, I'm really interested in the human condition and portraits, you go on an adventure with another human being. It's an immense privilege to spend real time with sometimes a complete stranger and you get to know each other in a very rare and unusual way. It's very intimate. It's very gentle painting someone's portrait. And it's a real privilege in the same way that perhaps war can be an immense journey into the reality of other people. And you're an observer, but also you get to know them by doing their portraits and you get led into their world. So both real privilege. I feel very lucky. I'm struck by the word beauty that you used at the very beginning in reply to my question, because for me, and I suppose for many of our listeners, the idea that war, crisis, conflict, we see all those images on TV of destruction and pain. What, what prompts you to speak about beauty in that context? I think that actually sometimes the most startling incidents of Beauty, in this case, light, or perhaps if you have a faith God, the light of God's love can be revealed in some of the darkest corners of the world. And that's really what I'm trying to search for and explore in my work, is trying to find that light in the darkness. 
Because of course, the very fact of the dark moon can reveal that beauty. I've seen incredible incidences of human compassion, self-sacrifice, brotherly, sisterly love, and courage in a way that I don't think you necessarily see in civilian life. I think that war especially is, and people call it the theater of war, is a distillation of human experience, of what it means to be human. And then being so, it, it reveals the very worst, yes, of the human condition, but also the very best. And it's those wonderful examples of that courage, that tenacity that I seek to portray in my work. When I was in Syria in 2018, I met, <laughs> excuse me, I met with Syrian women who'd been under siege for months, if not years, in Aleppo. And yet when I spoke to them, they didn't speak of anger and hatred. Yes, they were very traumatized, but they said to me, we make from destruction, construction. We make from death, life. This is the will of the Syrian people. We love life. We love peace. And the voices that I heard then were not entirely broken. They were those, yes, of defiance, but they were also of longing, longing to heal what has been shattered, mend what is broken, and gather what is scattered through a language of peace. And I'm sure that anyone listening who has been in some of these very pitiful places would perhaps agree that I think God most readily can be encountered in some of the worst afflicted parts of the world. I'm thinking about how there seems to be so much anger and outrage and indignance. And you mentioned the modern world, Twitter, the internet. It's very easy to just get ourselves all riled up and to be angry with people who are who have different views from us, who are different from us. And but what you've just spoken about, what the Syrian women spoke to you about, it actually reminds us that underneath all that is a glowing, beautiful human spirit. And that what I'm understanding that you're trying to achieve is to bring that out, that perhaps in a way a photograph may not be able to. I think it's very interesting, the difference between photography and painting. Painting draws the lens back. It is a slower language. It happens over time. It's not just one instant that a photograph is by definition. All of my Afghan paintings, my Iraqi paintings, all of my work from across different terrible war zones are a distillation and bounded work. So it's not just one instant. And I, as I said, I try and look for the good. I do believe that if you look hard enough, it is there. You will find it. I was in Afghanistan many years ago now in Thangin, one of the worst and most dangerous parts of Helmand province. And we just opened a medical post and the children had no access to anything, education or medicine or anything. This child was brought in. She was a little girl, perhaps of six years old. And she'd been brought in by her father because we had a female medic. She couldn't walk. Instead of asking her father what had happened to her, which was evidently very traumatic, I actually sought to depict the fierce tenderness of the way he held his child, which spoke to me of a universal language that every parent across the world feels that toward their child. 
the Afghans are known as great warriors, especially in Helmand. And yet I saw this man with such noble dignity and gentleness. And I was really trying to, in painting this painting, create a narrative on a more human level. This is the human face of war. Well, I think we often get too much of the headlines, too much of the horror, without seeing the spaces in between. And what I really want to do in painting is to try and bring that lens back to the quieter human face rather than the big and often terrible headlines. I guess what I'm asking people to do is reimagine who we all are in relation to one another individually, but also collectively. And in so doing, to find the common thread that, that binds the mosaic of life together. That's so true because one watches the news, you switch it on, it's in the background or it's on the radio and you see these streams of people, refugees, and you're thinking, oh, they're not like me. They're other people. They're over there. I don't have to worry about them or it's too upsetting to think about it. But what, what I'm understanding that you're trying to do is actually connect us with them. It's no longer us and them. It's all of us. It's humanity. I think it's very hard to find a way to respond or to act or to find one's place in today's world when, as you say, we are bombarded by a continuous newsreel of sadness and atrocity. The temptation is to turn away in despair. But I believe that in doing so, we deceive ourselves into thinking we can do nothing. And compassion fatigue, or as Pope Francis put it, the globalization of indifference settles over us and it obliterates the urgent need for change, the sharp edges. I think instead we can see today's world as an opportunity, see how we're connected to build bridges and not walls, which are going up at an alarming rate in today's world. This is what I really tried to do when I went out to Lesbos to work with the refugees at the height of what was called the refugee crisis in 2015. I spent the previous decade focusing on the human cost conflict in Afghanistan and Iraq, and I felt a personal connection to the refugees fleeing those countries. Refugees who on arrival in Lesbos told me in their own words, I come here for new life. I come here for hope or peace or education. Now, I didn't go to Lesbos thinking that I could change anything or find the solutions, but I did go in the hope that I might be able to create something that would lay down some sort of moral matrix for having that urge to change things, for making that urge intelligible. What I was struck by was complete human tragedy and chaos on a pretty epic scale. 5,000 people a day were arriving. And I felt that a painting, which, as I said, happens slowly over time, was an inadequate way of immediate response to this urgent situation. So I resolved to do something a lot more visceral that would ambush people about what was going on in this world. And I got a boat that 62 refugees were rescued from. It was sinking. They all would have drowned had the Coast Guard not come to their aid. And I brought this boat back to London and I hung it over Christmas in 2015 above the nave of the church of St. James's in Piccadilly. 
I hung it with three life jackets falling. It, the boat itself was upside down, plunging, as it were, towards the bow, at the bow towards the altar. And there were three life jackets hanging out of it. The smallest and the lowest was an infant one to remind people, of course, that Jesus was born to refugee parents in times equally fraught with danger and politically uh, political unrest. So that's really what you, sometimes you have to respond to the situation in, in, in different ways. But I was really trying to reach out to people during their time of Christmas and coming together to remind them that not everyone could gather as families. There were families that were completely dislocated and many thousands had died at sea. And it was a cry against all those who seek to dehumanize our fellow human beings, the traffickers, and those who drive today's conflict. It's quite a striking image. And if people go to your website, and if you Google Arabella Dorman, uh, her website will come up. You can see photos of that installation and also of Arabella's other artwork and paintings. But it strikes me what you said about that Jesus, of course, was from refugee, a refugee family seeking refuge. Actually, we forget that in the pretty Christmas lights and the pretty manger scenes and the lovely carols, which is all a wonderful celebration, but also that actually the message that he had was very rad. The story of the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan, reaching across to a perceived enemy to help him and casting the merchants out of the temple and all that. But those are act, acts of a man who is very passionate about helping humanity rather than just pretty singing carol. It was biblical. What I saw in the refugee crisis and actually often in Afghanistan because of the landscape and it is, it's so unspoiled or some people would call it the levels of poverty are terrible. There are biblical elements. One thing I saw in Lesbos was a mother and a two-year-old son who'd just been rescued. They'd literally been taken off a Coast Guard boat. And they sat there with this madness going all around. People were praying, they were crying, they were shouting, they were screaming. It was complete chaos. It was very traumatic. And when you think about the trauma that children go through on that level, it comes straight back to the work that we're all trying to do with Beyond Conflict. But what I saw was this lady sitting so still, so dignified, holding her only child. And I sketched her thinking what I was drawing was biblical. I felt that I was witnessing the Holy Family's flight to Egypt played out every single day. It was humanity laid bare, a little like the picture that we'll all remember of little Alan Curdy washed up on the beaches that really galvanized the world. So my response to that was the boat. A few years later, two years later, of course, the refugee crisis was still raging. It had actually worsened, but it had ceased to dominate the headline. And so I resolved to do a second installation about the refugee crisis, which was called Suspended. Suspended was a collection of clothes that refugees had discarded on the beaches of Lesbos, which I gathered and I sculpted and I hung in a giant chandelier above cathedrals all over the country, including Canterbury Cathedral, where it was about 10 meters in diameter. These clothes were not just a mass of discarded items. They were a collection of intimate portraits that asked the viewer to 
clothe themselves into compa- in compassion to go on a journey with another human being. Where had this person come from? Where where were their dreams going to? And to imagine, I think it's about asking the viewer or the audience to go with them on a journey of imagination. I lit the whole installation from a central orb, which actually was on a continuous circuit, going very bright and then very dark. As it brightened, it represented the light of hope by which every refugee travels. Also, more importantly, in the UK, the light within ourselves that might validate the hope. As it darkened, and it was over the winter time, it darkened to almost complete darkness. It served to remind us of the darkness that we leave our fellow human beings in, should we ignore their plight. Gosh, that sounds quite a visceral, unnerving exhibition because of the darkness of being plunged into complete darkness and to see these objects that belonged to people that were worn against the skin. A wonderful rector in St. James's, Reverend Lucy Winkett, with whom I worked, commented on how many people were crying under my installation. And we both agreed that in this instance, tears were actually good. Because this was my cry, this was everyone who worked with me on this installation, it was our cry, and a plea that the suffering cannot go on, as well as a call to resistance against the destructive horrors of war and the greed and corruption of those who actually put their fellow human beings on the boats in the first place. Also, it was an act of empathy and solidarity as we reach out to all those in flight. Kafka, the great writer, instructs us that art should shatter the frozen seas within us. And I love this expression because it speaks of the power of art to get inside the human psyche. And I like to think perhaps that the tears that were shed onto my installations were the meltwater of those seas. And in such a way, the installations become an opening, the beginning of a conversation perhaps the beginning of making people think a little differently and therefore act a little differently. So in addition to your war art, you're also an ambassador for a number of charities, including Beyond Conflict. Why do you, why did you choose to support Beyond Conflict? I think what Beyond Conflict is doing is really extraordinary because it's focusing on mental health and well-being of predominantly the most vulnerable in areas of conflict. I think we all know that the first victims of war are truce and children, and also often women, who are the nurturers, the the teachers, the guardians of those children and their mental well-being. Those children are the future. And no country can rebuild or look towards conflict resolution or reconciliation without strong mental health in the first place. It's absolutely at the root of everything. Without looking at those roots and without trying to address the mental well-being of people, the wounds of war will lead to further violence. I've seen it in Afghanistan so many times, a never-ending cycle of war of young men who've been weaned only on the language of violence and guns. 
instead of the incredible opportunity that they could have if they are given access to education. But first, before they're even able to receive that, they need to have the mental strength to receive it. And I have worked with the one charity who does extraordinary work running schools in the Bechel Valley in, in Lebanon. And they believe that it is much easier to teach a child and in so doing sustain a mental well-being than to try and break and remake a man or a woman who's already fallen into violence. So I think it lies absolutely the heart of looking at this world, and to go back to my original point, trying to make a, a bit of a difference through my work, which is really <laughs> what it all comes down to. It's about that spark of divinity within the human spirit as much as it is about the tragedy of war. Yes, it's about exile and despair, but my work is predominantly about the courage and hope that can be born out of the darkness. And I think that's what Beyond Conflict is doing so admirably. And as part of your support of Beyond Conflict, you've actually raised quite a lot of money for them. I've tried to raise money to do something practical to help. I'd like to think that the more money you raise and the more you spread the word about these issues, the more people might come along. And as I said, you can perhaps, in art, change the way people think. Even for an instance, when I did my installation in Canterbury Cathedral, it was met with some resistance by certain people, largely and understandably because they stood at the front line of what they saw as a refugee crisis. And actually when the installation was up, they came, many of them, and said I'd made them reconsider what they had been thinking. And they felt very humbled and they were determined to try and reach out to refugees and do more to help. And that's all that I'm trying to do beyond conflict. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the poet, in uh, his poem, In Xanadu de Kubla Khan, uh, Pleasure Dome decree. And I loved it because there's this image of the poet as the artist. He goes off to this landscape of ice and snow, also the rhyme of the ancient mariner. He, the poet and the artist, sees things that, that no hu other human can see, and you bring it back and you share it with the world. And through that witnessing and sharing, you have actually, in just in your story there, changed minds who, which were actually determined not to be on your side. You were able to change their minds. So it's really very powerful. I guess what I'm trying to do is to open up a space, like a conversation, an opening, in which we can all make ourselves vulnerable enough to see afresh. The derivation of the word vulnerable comes from vulnerare, which means to wound, which I think is really interesting because Rumi is one of my favorite writers and he wrote, the wound is the place that where the light enters you. And I see that light as hope. To quote Emily Dickinson, hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings a tune without words, never stops at all. If I can be a messenger, and I love being competitive. Coleridge, what an honor. He's one of my favorite poets. If I can be a messenger of that hope, then perhaps I've gone a little way to what I want to do. And may I ask, as a sort of very urban 
person who's physically a little bit of a coward, um, to think of you going off into a into war zones and conflict zones with your sketch pad in amongst all that. It must be must have been scary, must be scary at times. How do you deal with that? I often get asked this and <laughs> I, no, my answer is really very simple. I try and not put anyone else around me in any unnecessary risk or danger because my first objective is to bear witness. I'm out there. It's a huge privilege to be in some of these situations, even though, yes, I'm not going to lie. I often am very frightened, especially now I've got two small children. Uh, they permanently are in my head and I'm thinking, gosh, what am I doing? I'm risking a lot here. But then so is everyone around you. And the courage and the strength and the endurance of these soldiers that I've witnessed, the professionalism of the British soldiers with whom I've worked, and the incredible bravery of a lot of the civilians, are ultimately uh, so humbling that they galvanize you into focusing on the work and not thinking for one instant about your own precarious situation or your own danger. If you start giving into that, you you shouldn't be out there. You don't deserve any access to what you're witnessing. You I'm out there to serve and to listen and to learn. And I try and go with no preconceptions, but I do try and find the good. I do try and find the hope. And how has that affected you when you've come back? Do you, are there times when you think, oh gosh, these problems are so huge. I'm just a small painter in amongst all this. It's all too overwhelming. It's all too difficult. I'm just going to spend a day <laughs> under my duvet. I'm just going to give up. Yeah, there are times when I get completely overwhelmed by it. Children have an amazing way of bringing you back to a level of reality whether it's a children's birthday party the day after you come back from Syria or having to go and get sandwiches for them or what have you. But there are times when, especially when I'm out there, I find it inexhaustibly horrendous. When I was in Lesbos, actually, one time when I really did nearly break was I'd been working for a large part of the night trying to help refugees arriving. It was very cold. It was in the winter. And I'd pulled a young boy. He was probably about six. He was exactly the same age as my son at the time. I pulled him out of the icy waters and he was very traumatized. He was hypothermic. I think he was probably close to drowning, to be honest, because he couldn't swim. And he clung to me, soaked to the skin. He was shaking with fear and cold, but I wrapped him in a foil blanket and when he was dry, he expressed to me that he lost his father and he was shouting to his father. And this is one of the things the traffickers do, they separate families. Can you imagine being that age and not finding any member of your family in a situation like that in the dark? It was horrendous. By the end of a miracle, however, his father heard him. He'd arrived on another boat and they were reconciled. And he gave him his little tiny child's rucksack, out of which this small boy pulled a red, fluffy, children's toy, a red fluffy heart with the word, I love you, written on it. And he presented me with this gift. His sobbing father told me that he had carried it all the way from his bedroom in Aleppo, determined to give it to the first person in Europe who welcomed them. The words welcome and thank you hung in the air 
as I turned away in complete shame for what were they thanking me. But that is really when I resolved to do those installations because they are about trying to make ourselves all worthy of that thanks. And I don't believe we can turn away in complete despair because there is always something we can do. I'm just thinking and for that image, it is so moving, which has come across in your installation flight, which is the upturned boat. Wow. So for mere ordinary people like us, where we're not brave enough to be someone like you, we just want to help because we've been moved by these stories. What can we do? I think partly it's about learning in our thoughts and dangerous and intolerant world, learning to act with compassion and to have the courage to speak out, as well as the more gentle understanding and respect for our fellow human beings. Yes, on a practical level, it does come down to often fundraising. If you look at the extraordinary fundraising efforts that have gone on to support Ukrainian refugees and the very tangible and real changes and differences that's making to so many lives, you, I think, would do well to dig deep in your pocket. Likewise, with the work that I know Beyond Conflict are doing, they really are turning around lives that perhaps were led in trauma and now are moving towards mental well-being. The children that I've worked with in Gaza with St. John's Eye Hospital, one tiny example. So it is about fundraising, but I think more importantly, it's about learning to live with other people in your mind, about reaching out to your fellow human being in every walk of life. And perhaps there we can start pushing back the shadows that are inflicted by war and under which we all live and start looking towards the light again. Looking towards the light. I think this will be my title for this podcast. It's such a beautiful, moving human stories that, that you've shared with us. Thank you so much for speaking with us on the Beyond Conflict podcast. And so my absolute pleasure and privilege. Thank you so much. I was talking to Arabella Dorman, portrait painter and war artist. And now we hear from one of our co-founders, Edna Fernandez, with an update on the work of Beyond Conflict. So Yang Mei, the last few years, as you know, have been difficult ones, ones of profound change and challenge around the world. And um, this has obviously been reflected at Beyond Conflict as well. We've had to adapt, we've had to uh, rise to many new challenges that we didn't expect to. Despite these difficulties, my feeling is that people have shown a great compassion and capacity to continue to help despite their own problems, and they want to do more for others. And this is totally reflected in our ability to do our work. So for example, in December, 2021, uh, we had a major London school, Trinity School in Croydon, the school kids uh, decided to raise money for a Beyond Conflict project to uh, fund a mental health workshop for children and widows in southern Iraq. And the kids not only raised money by doing things like washing teachers' cars, doing um, volleyball contests and all sorts of fun and games during their lunch breaks, um, they then sent 
an individual Christmas card to every single one of the 60 families we helped. And that was really moving. And these cards were then sent to Iraq with the money. And some of those kids in Iraq then sent messages back to the school in London. So that's one example of, of, of people's continued giving. Then in uh, early 2022, uh, we funded a, a scoping mission, uh, which was done by our Bangladeshi partners, Global Development Development Corporation. They're based in Bangladesh and they went into the Rohingya refugee camp, the first since the lockdown had ended globally. And they did some refresher training with the NGO frontline workers that we had trained last year. And they got more feedback. They were told that a lot of changes had happened in those workers' lives as a result of our training, positive effect. And then they had a series of meetings inside the camp with a number of other NGO heads and put together a consortium to roll out phase two of our project there. So that would comprise of more training of frontline workers, an extension of our referral pathway, an extension of our telephone hotline, which in some cases can help avert a real mental health crisis for people in the camp. And in addition, we are going to start a new community, refugee community-based workshop, which will assist mothers and newborn babies who've been born in the camp. So we need about 20 to 30,000 to get that started. So this is something that we are going to be focusing on as the year goes on and into next year. And thirdly, as everyone knows, in February, uh, very sadly, we saw the invasion of Ukraine and a very brutal war unfold right here on the doorstep in Europe. And that had a great effect on people and they wanted to do something. Uh, we were like many charities. We felt this was something that we had to respond to. Uh, while not uh, diminishing our other projects as well, we decided we had to do something. So we started a campaign to raise money for Ukrainian refugees. We donated 4,000 to three frontline NGOs operating in Poland, helping those millions of refugees who were being displaced as a result of the war. And then we've just raised another five, which we're sending over to two frontline charities in, in Poland, this money, 9,000 in total, is going to be used to help those frontline workers deliver mental health support as well as general aid. It's going to help finance the refugee centers that are being uh, set up across the region. And we hope we play our small part to help redress uh, some of the terrible things that have happened in that war. And this is an ongoing uh, project, obviously. I'd like to finish, Yang Mei, by saying that we couldn't have accomplished any of this without the kindness of our donors and also people like Arabella, our ambassadors, who help raise awareness about our work. And we are a very small charity, so we really rely on word of mouth, online and offline. Uh, so thank you to all those people who've helped us reach our targets. And 
with your continued help, we can continue these projects. So if you want to do more, if you listen to this and you've not heard of us before, please look at our website, which uh, you can find uh, on the podcast link. And also, please donate if you can or volunteer to help. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. That was Edna Fernandez, one of the co-founders of Beyond Conflict. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you may also like our other podcast episodes. Previous guests have included humanitarian Terry Waite and BBC Two Pause for Thought presenter Ed Newell. Go to the Beyond Conflict website, beyond-conflict.co.uk, and click through to Media, then select Our Podcasts. I hope that you've been inspired or intrigued by what you've heard today about the work of Beyond Conflict. To find out more or how you can help, please go to beyond-conflict.co.uk and check out the Take Action link. You can follow Beyond Conflict on Twitter and Facebook, where we are at Beyond Conflict 1, that's the numeral 1, at Beyond Conflict 1. On Instagram, we are at Beyond Conflict Charity. You can contact me, Yang Mei Ui, about this podcast at podcast at beyond-conflict.co.uk. You can also contact our co-founder, Edna Fernandez, direct about volunteering or taking action in some way to help those affected by mental health issues in conflict zones. Please email Edna at edna at beyond-conflict.co.uk. This has been the Beyond Conflict podcast. Thank you for listening and see you next time.